Hiroshima, Nagasaki, two names that will live in infamy as the first two targets, the first two cities, to be hit with a nuclear weapon. As we prepare to mark the 77th anniversary of the atom bomb being dropped in Japan, it's common belief that this move was necessary to bring World War II to a close. But was it? Could the United States have decided not to drop those bombs? And if they were considered necessary to be used in war, who were we targeting to receive such a horror? We'd like to think that we were going after military targets alone. But then a genuine expert, someone who has spent decades researching the time that led up to the dropping of the bombs. And he tells you... That callous indifference to what the bomb might do, just the whole issue of targeting, you know, the fact that it was targeted over the center of two cities deliberately and would kill the maximum amount of people, and with the knowledge that these would be overwhelmingly civilians. It was not an accident. You know, we didn't target a military base or anything. There's nothing in the literature that says these bombs will be dropped over such and such a military base, and then, of course, civilians will suffer also. The targeting is always over the center of the two cities. Well, when award-winning author, journalist, and filmmaker Greg Mitchell points out that the United States did not target military bases with the first two atomic bombs, but went after the largest kill zones possible, meaning the specific targeting of civilians, we begin to understand the awfulness of what the Japanese people experienced and the deadly nature of that seat that now we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, to commemorate the dropping of the atom bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we talk with author, journalist, filmmaker Greg Mitchell. He is the director of Nuclear Cover-Up, the award-winning film that showed long-suppressed footage of the immediate aftermath of the bombings. Every year, he posts Countdown to Hiroshima, a series of blog posts that chronicle, day by day, the final two weeks before the bombs were dropped and reveals the voices that were against it, how it might have been avoided, and the factors that went in the decision to make the drop. Could we have ended the war promptly without unleashing an atomic holocaust, not once but twice? It's a fascinating and heartbreaking way to examine what went into a planetary turning point. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Linda Pence-Gunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, 
and more honest nuclear information than appears on any ballot in today's U.S. primary elections. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting here in the U.S., where the proposal to dump radioactively contaminated water into Cape Cod Bay has met with massive opposition. Residents of nearby Plymouth on Cape Cod, politicians, and environmental activists are opposing a proposal by Holtec, the company decommissioning the Pilgrim nuclear reactor, to dump 1.1 million gallons of radioactive wastewater that was used to cool spent nuclear fuel rods into Cape Cod Bay, which of course is the Atlantic Ocean. In addition to radioactive tritium, the water also contains non-radioactive pollutants, this according to preliminary sampling results. Holtec has proposed four options for disposing of the water, which include trucking it to another facility for disposal, a.k.a. kicking it down the road, evaporating the water and discharging vapor through the air handling system, long-term on-site storage, or cleaning it up, we should put cleaning in quotes, and dumping it into Cape Cod Bay. This last option is believed to be the cheapest for the company and has raised considerable concerns within the community. Protests there are heating up and run parallel to the protests against dumping water from Fukushima Daiichi in Japan into the Pacific Ocean. In Michigan, near the Fermi-2 nuclear reactor, harmful algae blooms have been confirmed on the coast of Lake Erie. Thermal pollution from Fermi and a neighboring coal plant is the leading cause of jumpstarting these dangerous algae blooms. Anti-nuclear groups, including Kraft and NEIS in Chicago, are petitioning the Michigan Department of Energy for the Great Lakes environment to set temperature limits when they renew Fermi's permit to discharge heated water into the lake. At San Onofre in Southern California and all the way up to Clive, Utah, the Unit 2 reactor pressure vessel head is being shipped to the Energy Solutions Disposal Facility in Clive, Utah. The reactor vessel head weighs about 77 tons and spans nearly 17 feet and will be shipped over highways. While the radioactivity level for the reactor head is classified as low, a relative term, there's no word about where the route is and how it will be getting up to Utah. This shipment of radioactive materials on our public highways is often referred to as Mobile Chernobyl. In Georgia, one of the co-owners of the Vogel nuclear power plant debacle has decided to stop spending on the nuclear project over the costs and delays that have plagued the project. The long-promised Vogel expansion is already years behind schedule and billions of dollars over its original budget. And minority owner Dalton Utilities has decided to opt out, even as other of the co-owners have determined that they will sue Georgia Power. That's nukes for you. Never on time, never at or under budget. And now for another example of nuclear boneheadedness. Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's on a week. In the ongoing department of nuclear reactor sales hype, Radiant Nuclear has announced that they are developing a micro-reactor which I guess is a mini version of a small modular nuclear reactor, they're saying that it, quote, 
could provide safe, portable nuclear energy within the next five years, calling it the world's first portable zero-emissions power source. They tout it as being able to be applied on Earth, thanks for that clarification, and could also be used as, quote, an easily deployable fleet of reactors to bring power to remote communities and military bases. So how many lies or misdirections are there in what they are saying? Let us count the ways. Within the next five years, is nuke speak for, we don't know when it's going to be built, but this sounds like a reasonable number. But no small modular nuclear reactors or even micro-mini modular reactors have ever been built, let alone tested. So nobody even knows if their design is workable. As for the within five years, when was the last time anything nuclear did came online on schedule, let alone on budget? If you answered never, you would be correct. So cross off the imaginary timeline. The world's first zero emissions power source. I guess they've never heard about solar powered battery packs like Jackery. I've got one and I use it for camping. I can give them a link on Amazon if they're interested in learning more. An easily deployable fleet of reactors to bring power to remote communities and military bases. As our friends Marius and Candace Paul of Northern Saskatchewan point out, when there was a fire at a nearby non-nuclear power station, no one from the company was able to get there to help out the local community. Either the weather was bad or they just didn't bother. So if there's a nuclear reactor problem, even if it's a micro, mini, itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny reactor, do you think they'll be able to get help up there in a timely manner? Or care to do so? Make the effort? Or will they just issue some more cleverly worded press releases? Gallingly, Radiant Nuclear has recently received $10 million in funding from the USV, a venture capital fund that says it invests in companies and projects that, quote, provide mitigation for or adaptation to the climate crisis. Too bad USV didn't bother to do their nuclear homework, or they'd realize that this is just another nuclear hot air balloon meant to skim funds that would otherwise go to implementing solar, wind, geothermal, and hydroelectric or other forms of genuinely renewable energy. They are just in the business of skimming the financial cream off the top. And all of this is why, Radiant Nuclear, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. And we will link to an article entitled Keeping Diablo Canyon Running Past 2025 is Not the Answer to California's Energy Future. It's written by Kevin Camps and appears in PowerMag.com. And Power Mag, Power Magazine, is not known for its anti-nuclear stance. Over to Japan, where in response to that country's Nuclear Regulatory Commission's approval of a plan to discharge radioactive water from TEPCO's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant into the ocean by diluting it, we'll revisit that concept, with seawater, a Prefectural Decommissioning Safety Monitoring Council has approved a draft report that concluded that the safety of the surrounding areas will be ensured by the measures TEPCO has proposed. What's not pointed out is the central lie in the statement. Because radioactive materials cannot be diluted by seawater. They can be dispersed. Dilute means to make it weaker. Disperse means to spread it over a farther area. 
And since the smallest dangerous unit of anything radioactive is a single atom, and you cannot dilute an atom, what they're doing is they're spreading it around so that it covers an even wider area. That is not the definition of safety. In response to this go-ahead to dump 1,310,000 tons of radioactive wastewater into the Pacific, the fishing industry around Japan's Fukushima coast have expressed disappointment and resignation as this plan moves one step closer to reality. This drastic measure has been adopted as, quote, the only practical way out of a dilemma, end quote, that's plagued the damaged facility for more than a decade. But the definition of practical in this case might be the most cost-efficient to Tokyo Electric Power Company. But the nuclear establishment is closing ranks to support this, this plan. Last spring, International Atomic Energy Agency Director General Rafael Grossi declared ocean disposal, quote, both technically feasible and in line with international practice, end quote. That doesn't mean it's right or appropriate. Before TEPCO's proposal can proceed, it must win backing from regional government in Fukushima Prefecture and the two affected towns of Okuma and Futaba. A Fukushima fish processing company representative told the Asahi newspaper, to be honest, even if we oppose this, I don't feel like we have any chance of overturning the decision. The local fishing industry fears the ocean release, but there are many others who are opposing this move. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yul said on Tuesday, July 26, that Japan should seek the consent of neighboring countries before moving ahead with its plan to discharge the radioactive wastewater into the ocean. And South Korean citizens went to the Japanese embassy in South Korea to hold a protest rally, condemning the Japanese nuclear regulator for approving the plan to discharge the water into the Pacific and asking the Japanese government to withdraw the decision. Protesters held placards and shouted slogans strongly condemning Japan's nuclear polluted water discharge plan, saying the ocean is shared by mankind, it's not Japan's own, and that this decision endangers the health of all human beings and must be stopped. As one protester said, this decision is a major crime that may take away the future of mankind. Continuing in Japan, Four former executives of Tokyo Electric Power Company appealed a court ruling that ordered them to pay the utility some 13 trillion yen, $95 billion in American dollars, in damages for failing to prevent the tsunami-induced 2011 crisis at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant. The plaintiffs, who are demanding damages of 22 trillion yen, are demanding the seizure of the four executives' possessions, this after a district court said that the process can begin even if its ruling is appealed and the trial continues at a higher court. The Tokyo District Court ruled that despite a TEPCO unit's 2008 assessment of the plant's vulnerability to tsunamis, the utility's countermeasures for tsunami risk, quote, fundamentally lacked safety awareness and a sense of responsibility and judged that the executives failed to perform their duties. Here at Nuclear Hot Seat, we predict that this settlement of $95 billion in damages is going to get whittled down and eventually disappear. And the Japan Nuclear Fuel Limited Company, or JNFL, which is constructing a spent nuclear fuel processing plant in Rokasho Village in Aomi Prefecture, 
said that the plant's target completion date, which is approximately two months away, quote, has reached a point where we have to consider postponing it. No surprise there. It was supposed to have opened in 1997, and this marks the 26th postponement of the commissioning of this nuclear reprocessing plant. That's nuclear. Never on time. Never under budget. Over to Ukraine, where Rafael Grossi, Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, has warned that Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Ukraine, quote, is completely out of control and issued an urgent plea to Russia and Ukraine to quickly allow experts to visit the sprawling complex to stabilize the situation and avoid a nuclear accident. In an interview with the Associated Press, Grossi said that the situation is getting more perilous every day at the Zaporizhia 6 nuclear reactor plant, and quote, every principle of nuclear safety has been violated. What's at stake is extremely serious and extremely grave and dangerous. To learn more about the situation, here's Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. What on earth is going on at Ukraine's six reactors up nuclear power plant? The stories that have been flying around the news cycle are positively eye-stretching, but many of them don't pass the second source journalistic gold standard, making it challenging to figure out what's going on. The actual facts are tangled up in a propaganda war between Russia and Ukraine, each determined to make the other one out as the villain. But what we do know is that Zaporizhia, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, came under fire from Russian forces on March 4th and has been occupied by them ever since. But what does this mean? It's pretty clear that the Russians have fortified the Zaporizhia site, turning it into a veritable arsenal and using that weaponry to launch offensives into the contentious region of eastern Ukraine. It's a sly tactic because obviously the risks of firing back and causing a nuclear catastrophe provide an effective deterrent against any Ukrainian counteroffensive. However, the Russians claim that Ukrainian forces have in fact fired back at the nuclear plant. Ukraine categorically denies this. In a July 31st on-the-ground story from the site by the New York Times, Colonel Serhii Shatalov asked the Times, how can we respond? This is a nuclear site. But in the same article, the Ukrainians did concede that they have executed some precision strikes while avoiding, quote, as much as possible, unquote, any damage to the reactors. As much as possible? Again, we don't know what this means or whether the plant has in fact suffered any damage. Meanwhile, in other rumors, the local mayor alleged that an event occurred at the plant leading to the injury and death of as many as eight Russians, and we've also heard stories about plant workers being, quote, thrown into basements, unquote. What is crystal clear is that a nuclear plant workforce under duress and potentially not in control of the day-to-day operation of the six reactors is reason for alarm and a recipe for the kind of human error that is invariably the cause of an industrial accident. The International Atomic Energy Agency, meanwhile, has expressed the urgent desire to visit and inspect the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, but Ukrainian authorities have rejected this whilst the plant is occupied by Russia. Russia has also talked about redirecting the electricity generated at Zaborizhia into Russia, but Ukraine's Energoatom has suggested this would take years and is no easy task. The actual risks of a hit on the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, lost amidst all the other headlines, are immense. 
A disaster there endangers the lives and health not only of people in Ukraine, but of countless others well beyond its borders. As we've said before on this program, a breach of even one, let alone all six, of Zaporizhia's nuclear reactors would dwarf the devastation wreaked by the 1986 Chernobyl disaster. A major radiation release carried by the prevailing winds could dump dangerous and, more importantly, very long-lasting radioactivity on lands across Europe and even beyond. There are many reasons to find an urgent way to end this needless war in Ukraine. The consequences of a disaster at Zaporizhia should be at the top of that list. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. In the UK, as of August 1st, Nuclear Waste Services will ignore the advice of scientists, national and local organization, and the voices of over 50,000 people to carry out seismic blasting for 20 days or more in the Irish Sea off the coast of West Cumbria. Why? To test the geology for emplacement of a deep, very hot, and very dirty nuclear dump. There has been no public consultation or vote by councillors to allow this. Tim Deere-Jones, a radiation marine biologist and a frequent contributor to Nuclear Hot Seat, has read the Public Health England report on this issue and states that it desperately steers clear of any facts that don't support a pro-nuclear position. It misrepresents and spins or twists everything else and provides exactly what our successive pro-nuclear government and their buddies in the nuclear industry want. He goes on to say, clearly, they don't give a damn about initiating the odd radiation-linked illness because, of course, thanks to the bloody awful method our government uses to collect health statistics, they will be as near as impossible to ID and link to any specific cause, let alone exposure to radioactivity. This is the way things are done in a nuclear energy state. Meanwhile, on August 6th, the Cumbria Wildlife Trust will be holding a Festival of the Sea, encouraging people to get creative with sand sculptures. And for foodies, we'll have some great demonstrations and tasters showing how we can enjoy cooking and eating seafood. Radiation Free Lakeland has asked that the public are at least warned by Cumbria Wildlife Trust about radioactive particles on the beach. For several years, they've been carrying out a citizen science project, collecting samples from West Cumbria beaches and having them analyzed independently. The findings show unacceptable levels of radioactive particles on those beaches. But the officials are not paying attention. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, nuclear war is not survivable. No matter what public service announcements the nuclear industry and its toadies in politics and government bureaucracy put out there. As we mark the 77th anniversary of the United States dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the threat of a nuclear war has never been greater. Ukraine's nuclear reactors remain at ground zero for disaster, and saber-rattling continues between Russia, the U.S., and we'll probably be hearing from China before long as well. All of this ramps up the chance that the unthinkable might become reality. The dangers are real and they're not going away. And that is why Nuclear Hot Seat is here. Mainstream media does not follow nuclear issues regularly. So it's up to us, and we are dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories and issues every week with context and continuity. We also offer insights and tools 
to fight back against this forever contamination of our precious planet. But we need your help to keep doing this important work. In honor of our 11th anniversary last month, how about sending in a donation of $11? Or make it $5, the same as a cup of coffee here in the U.S. Or, if you can, send more. Be it a one-time donation or monthly recurring support, you'll be helping to keep Nuclear Hot Seat up and running to provide you with cutting-edge information on what the nukesters are doing and steps we can take to oppose them and protect ourselves. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, and help us with a donation of any amount, one time or recurring. Donate what you can now, and know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Greg Mitchell is the former editor and publisher of Nuclear Times. He's the author of more than a dozen books, with three of them on the use of the bomb. One of them, Atomic Cover-Up, on the decades-long suppression of shocking film shot in the atomic cities by the U.S. military, became an award-winning film that is still being shown at film festivals around the world. Another of his books, entitled The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, tells the wild story of how an MGM 1947 drama was censored by the military and Truman himself, with General Leslie Groves of the Manhattan Project acting as a script doctor. Every year, Greg Mitchell publishes Countdown to Hiroshima, blog posts that chronicle what was going on politically behind the scenes as the decision to drop the bomb was being made. To learn more, I spoke with Greg Mitchell on July 28th, 2022. Greg Mitchell, great to have you back with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. I'm very happy to be here. Let's start out with just a little bit of background on you. How did you first become aware of and involved in nuclear issues? Well, given my age, it was hard to not be affected by nuclear issues starting in the 1950s with the severe nuclear threat and duck and cover and everything else in our schools. Then, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, and onward from there. And I was certainly aware of those things. I I wouldn't say as a teenager or whatever, I was a nuclear scholar, but I had the same fears and involvement with these things. I will say that uh, it was maybe predictive in a way that my favorite film, starting when I was, uh, I don't know, about 15, I guess, was Dr. Strangelove. Uh, I saw it in the theaters after it came out. I was a big Peter Sellers fan and so forth. So it was always my favorite film. I could quote large parts of the script for many years and so forth. And then we got into the 1970s. Uh, nuclear issues went down a bit and then they, they rose again at the end. And then at the time of the early 80s, the great anti-nuclear movement, nuclear freeze campaign, I was very interested in that. I took part in the June 12th march in New York City and so forth. But it, it was not my number one issue, but I was, I was very much interested and involved with it. And then I was hired to be the editor of uh, Nuclear Times magazine in um, the fall of 1982. It just started. It just I think they just had one issue out. And uh, it was meant to be, and I guess it was the Bible of the anti-nuclear movement for several years. And I was hired to be the editor. So that really threw me into the issue. Were you already focused on nuclear issues or how did they find you and how did they determine that you were their guy? 
Well, that's kind of a long story. The publisher had been publisher of a previous magazine where I was an editor. So it was more like he knew my background as an editor. So it worked out. It wasn't that I was known for any nuclear writing I had done per se. So I became the editor of Nuclear Times for four years in New York City. And then the anti-nuclear movement was in decline by then, partly because there was, it's the usual grassroots had gotten a little tired. Right or wrong, a lot of the activities have moved to Washington, uh, lobbying for arms control bills, lobbying for test-a-ban treaties, and so on and so forth. And so the kind of the grassroots fervor was fading, and it was becoming in a way more establishment. So that affected the magazine. Several major things happened during that time there, and uh, perhaps the most important was I got a grant to go to Hiroshima and Nagasaki for a month. Uh, in the summer of 1984. And this was a a journalism grant. They set up interviews with a couple dozen bomb survivors, nuclear experts there, uh, even toured a U.S. base, various uh, doctors and across the entire spectrum involved in this issue, and then came back to the U.S. and wrote numerous uh, articles about it, including for the New York Times and the Washington Post, many, many publications. So It was personally important to me. It was an incredible trip, an incredible effect on me going there and doing that. Very unusual for Americans. Most American reporters kind of come in for a day or two around the time of the ceremonies, and then they leave. So it's very, very unusual for an American to be there for a month, basically doing research and meeting people. So that stuck with me to this day, really. And also I got in, in, in the course of working at Nuclear Times, I became friends with Robert J. Lifton, who was, you know, by the, by the leading writer on the survivors. So we became friends and then we collaborated, uh, we collaborated on two books, including my 1995 classic Hiroshima in America, which looked at the effects of using the bomb on America since 1945. And uh, so I'm not, I don't know if it's a long story or a short story, but that's basically... Uh, <laughs> how I got at least to the this century in uh, being involved with nuclear issues. You also, during this time, had a radio program. Could you tell us about that? When I was at Nuclear Times in this period, I also met and um, published the first major story on the two men who had shot this footage in the only color footage in Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the bombing. And then the footage was uh, seized and buried by the Americans for for decades. And so I, at Nuclear Times, I published the first major article on this. And then uh, years later, just last year, I wrote and directed the film Atomic Cover-Up, which we talked about on this program, which has now been in about 20 festivals and won multiple awards and, and so forth. Again, that came about through Nuclear Times and stayed with me for all these years and led to that film. You have written freelance, the books, you have the film. Recently, you began blogging a series called Countdown to Hiroshima. What is that? Where does it appear? And why is this important? I kind of do this every year for the last several years. And what I do is starting in about three weeks before the August 6th and August 9th atomic bombings, I do a daily Uh, and we call it an article, it's sort of a lengthy blog post with generally several items of what was happening on that date in 1945. 
which is now 77 years, right? So it kind of allows people to look at, you know, okay, you're back in this time. You may know the journal outlines that, you know, the bomb was tested or whatever, and then a decision was made to use it, and then the bombs were dropped and so forth. But here's actually what was going on day by day. And you really get to experience how and when decisions were made, maybe a little bit why they were made. Two or three dates where Truman was writing in his diary about the, what he knew about the bomb and what he knew about Japanese surrender attempts, what he knew about the Russians and when the Russians were entering the war. And he recognized, for example, that Russia's entry in the war would likely cause Japan to surrender even without use of the bomb. Now, some people may know these things, but to see them in the exact date, the exact context before and after, on this date they were doing this, and this date they did that, and the next date this happened, and then the next day this, you know, something that should have happened didn't happen. It's a way of experiencing in real time almost this final three weeks of lead up to the use of the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So I've been sort of re, you know, reviving it every year, and it always appears on my blog which is called Pressing Issues. You can, I'm sure if you Google it, you'll find, if you look up Greg Mitchell Pressing Issues or Greg Mitchell Hiroshima Countdown, you'll find it. And you can just go back and look at previous days, you know. Do you evolve it every year? Yeah, I, I, the new, new things come out. I add and revise every year. And a lot of the basic facts, of course, don't change. It's history. But, you know, there are some changes every year and some things are still getting revealed. Occasionally something does come up even in the news that some mm-hmm. historical document has been found or whatever. What, if anything, had surprised you or shocked you or saddened you most in looking at this chronology day by day leading up to the explosion of the two atomic bombs? There's a lot of things. Certainly it's shocking the awareness that American leaders had at the very top, not, not just Truman, but others around him, not only what the bomb could do, where it was targeted. There is a certain amount, of, with Truman particularly, where you, you do have, sometimes you question, what did he really know? You're sort of like Reagan or Trump in a way, you know, it was a little hard to, how much were they really on top of things here? But that callous indifference to what the bomb might do, just the whole issue of targeting, you know, the fact that it was targeted over the center of two cities deliberately and would kill the maximum amount of people. And with the knowledge that these would be overwhelmingly civilians, it was not an accident. You know, we didn't target a military base or anything. There's nothing in the literature that says these bombs will be dropped over such and such a military base. And then, of course, the civilians will suffer also. The targeting is always over the center of the two cities. That's one thing. Another thing, of course, is the knowledge, which, again, surprised me. I mean, from decades ago, I wouldn't have known this, and most Americans don't know it today, or they choose to forget it if they know it, which is the timing of Russia's entry into the war. Truman went to Potsdam to get Stalin's uh, agreement to enter uh, around uh, August 10th. Stalin agreed, and Truman wrote in his diary, as I said, Finney Japs, when that happened. He had another reference to Japan surrendering almost certainly after the Russian entry. Now, this has led to the theory by many that we dropped the bomb mainly to halt the Russians from getting in on the spoils or getting in on the occupation of Japan or advancing further in Asia. Now, I've never 100% agreed with that. I think it's part of it, perhaps. 
that this was in the uh, Truman or other American officials' mind, that it was advantageous to scare Russia and bring the war to a halt as soon as possible. But at the same time, there was recognition that Russia's entry would likely end the war very, very quickly without the use of the bomb. I mean, you think about that. You think of what using the bomb set in motion besides the, you know, 200,000 civilian deaths, the beginning of the arms race, the focus on the use of the bomb, the utility of using the bomb, America's first use policy, which remains in effect today, and everything that's happened, as you've talked about every, every program almost, you know, all the bad effects of nuclear radiation and nuclear workers and nuclear waste and everything else. So that's kind of shocking. And just the third thing is just quickly, and, and there I could probably list 10, was, it was the role of Nagasaki, that even if you want to say that there might have been some defense for using the bomb against Hiroshima, maybe it's, it ended the war sooner than the Russia entry would have etc. Maybe defended on some level. Nagasaki is an out-and-out war crime. Just absolutely no need for it. And it it was just used as part of an assembly line. Once we had the two or three bombs that we had, again, it's that callous disregard, which I mentioned earlier with Truman. He said, what did he know? Or what didn't he know? Or did he really want to do this or whatever? It's just, well, what what the heck? If we drop another bomb over the center of the city, you know, that's the way it goes rather than, well, let's wait a few days after Hiroshima and we can always drop the second bomb and so forth. So anyway, that the sad fate and tragedy of Nagasaki becomes more and more in focus the more you read about it. I've done quite a bit of research into this particular time frame through the lens of William L. Lawrence, the science writer for the New York Times who became embedded in the Manhattan Project. I actually have a play that I've written that's in development now about him. And one of the things that has struck me is that with the U.S. having spent $2 billion in 1945 dollars on a program that for the most part nobody knew existed, that there had to be some way for Leslie Groves and the Manhattan Project to prove that they had earned their money. So in that way, there was no way to stop the bomb from being dropped, even though there were attempts to get it dropped in, you know, in the middle of the ocean, drop it somewhere else, do something else with it. And that the reason that they had to debt Nagasaki was that it was a different style of bomb. And they mm-hmm. wanted to go, is this a better bomb? Is It might be a callous way of looking at it, but both of those strike me as being key elements within the U.S. decision. Do you yeah. think there would have been any way, given the day-by-day chronology that you have, do you think there would have been any place where an intervention, where an anything could have stopped the bomb, the bombs? From being dropped. Yeah, I think so. I've never, I know people like to say, uh, well, it had this momentum and there was no way it was not going to be used. But I think that takes out the human factor. If, if someone else other than Truman had been president, there's some thought, and again, it may, it may be a minority view, but that, that if Roosevelt had not died, he would have been strong enough to halt it. He was a totally different figure. Truman was uh, as General Groves said himself, like a little boy on a toboggan during those months, someone like Roosevelt might have stepped in. So, I mean, I think wisdom could have prevailed. I, I, I just don't take it as, uh, I think it's too easy when people say, well, what are you going to do? It was going to be used, you know. 
And I'm well aware, I've written about for decades, all the pressures to use it. And you mentioned the money aspect, which again is a bunch of things that I see were factors. People say, well, why was the bomb used? And I'd say, look, people try to distill it down to one factor or two factors when actually there were numerous things driving the use. But nevertheless, I think it still could have and should have been stopped. And there were people, there were, you know, Leo Zillard and others who were, had signed the petition, the Manhattan Project. There were people within the administration, certainly we now know that Eisenhower urged Truman and Stimson to not use the bomb. Other generals who were not really polled on it later said they thought it was, it was, not, it was not necessary. Uh, Ambassador Grew, Admiral Leahy, who was the chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, nonetheless, didn't think it was necessary. So it is possible. I just like to think that this was not inevitable. I think that the word inevitable was used a little too often with this. And unfortunately, we're living with the aftermath of that even to this day. Let's shift this into another aspect of your work, because much of what you do has been dedicated to what you refer to as media politics. What do you mean by that phrase and how does it show up? Oh, it started with me. You might go all the way back to the 70s. I was, you know, came out of journalism school and I was always interested in media, fascinated with media, worked in the media, and of course was equally interested in politics and political campaigns and so forth. So it just seems like every job I had and every book I've written had a major or even the major focus was this intersection of media and politics or how media cover-ups, I seem to keep coming back to media suppression or cover-ups or manipulation or whatever whether it's political campaigns or the atomic bomb or Hollywood movies or whatever. And it's probably because I look for it. You know, I have a new new film I've just completed that focuses on that. It's just, I don't know. Like I said, it may be partly that I look for it. And in other cases, it seems like it's a, it's a good thing to pursue. People like, I guess they like to read about or watch official cover-ups get exposed. So I find it interesting. You published a book two years ago, the beginning or the end, how Hollywood and America learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Great title. Fill us in on what that was about. Well, the beginning or the end, the title of the book was also the name of the first movie, Hollywood movie, made about the making and use of the bomb. It came out in early 1947. It was much delayed. But the story behind it, what makes it, again, in this cover-up, in a way, suppression, censorship, realm is it was proposed to MGM in the fall of 1945, shortly after the bombing, that MGM should make a film that would basically reflect the atomic scientist view of the time, which was that we must not have an arms race. We must not go down the path of nuclear weapons. And by the way, maybe dropping the bomb on Japan wasn't such a great idea. So this was, there were all these scientist groups around the country that had formed, and it just so happened that uh, one of the scientists who was active in that and who had been at Los Alamos was an old school teacher of the actress Donna Reed, who was emerging as a kind of a major star in Hollywood. And he wrote her, and she, her husband happened to be a Hollywood agent, and he got to MGM, and MGM decided they were going to make the first movie, and it would be a movie that would basically take an anti-nuclear slant. And uh, Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, said it would be the most important movie he'd ever made. Big budget, went forward, they had big names involved in the script. But a few months later, 
when they started dealing with the White House and the Pentagon, lo and behold, they got all this backlash. And over the course of several months, the Truman White House, Truman himself, General Groves, basically became script doctors, basically were allowed to edit the script, uh, demand edits in the script. So in the course of the next year, this film, which started out as a, which could have been a very valuable, skeptical look, both at the, the use of the bomb already and building more bombs, became basically pro-Pentagon propaganda in the script. Now, this is a drama. This is not a documentary. So the drama became it, love stories and just ridiculous scenes, ridiculous rewriting of history. And so it ended up in the end as a basically pro-bomb epic. And it was, you know, widely mocked by critics and it didn't get a big, thank God it didn't get a big audience, but it did get, you know, a release into theaters where millions of people could see it. And you can watch it today. On It's recycled on the Turner Classics. There's actually a link on YouTube and I'm going to be posting that along with this interview. Okay. You know, I mean, it's kind of wacky in a way. If The book is a, you might say it's a breezy read, given the subject matter, because it, it, again, it follows week by week the making and unmaking of this film. And I got access to dozens of scripts at the Motion Picture Academy. I got access to thousands of letters and memos from Groves. And Robert Oppenheimer is a key figure, you know, as some people know by now Christopher Nolan is making a blockbuster Hollywood movie that's going to come out next July called Oppenheimer but if you can't wait to read about that a large segment of my book is about Oppenheimer and his very revealing interplay with this movie and his already mixed feelings about the bomb and the use of the bomb and so forth Oppenheimer people out there uh, one of the most fascinating figures in our history he's very much featured in this book And with your excellent film that we have done an interview about this previously, but let's just catch up. What's been happening with Atomic Cover-Up and how might it be available if people wish to see it? It's continued to show at festivals. Uh, In fact, the Uranium Film Festival, which I believe was in Rio, which was the timing for our previous interview. The end of August, it's going to be showing in Norway. In uh, October, it's going to be showing in Berlin as part of the festival. And, uh, you know, they're aiming for screenings of other cities. It may still show up in a, a couple other festivals. We're still trying to get it streamed on a streaming platform. And we're just making a, a contract for educational distributorship. So it'll be shown in schools uh, and public community gatherings. But it's, right now, it is not streaming online. You can't just go to a certain site and stream it, but no doubt that will be coming. And of course, you let us know when it is. Yeah, yeah. What is next for you? This most recent film was about Upton Sinclair and the political ads that were used against him really to take him out. What's next? Do you have a nuclear topic coming or have you got a focus or are you just kind of floating around right now? You never know. The Upton Sinclair film, which is about the first attack, in fact, it's called The First Attack Ads, is already shown in some festivals and won a couple of awards. And it's going to be aired on PBS in Southern California in October. And they're hoping, and there's a good chance it'll be shown around the country in those two weeks before the midterm elections. So you might keep an eye out for that. There's a very good chance it'll be widely shown on PBS, even beyond California. I've also just completed another film, which is called The Memorial Day Massacre, 
which is another thing in our history that many people don't even know about. And it's basically in a nutshell in 1937 in Chicago, police opened fire, uh, march on labor, labor union marchers who were on strike and killed 10 of them, almost all of them in the back. One of the worst incidents in U.S. labor history. Talk about, okay, what's, what's your media cover-up angle here, Greg? And the answer is that Paramount Newsreel, which had the only footage of the incident, chose not to release it and basically buried it for a month. And then a, uh, thanks to a congressional committee, much like our January 6th committee today, they had, had hearings and finally got Paramount to release the footage, which caused a national uproar. And so this film is very much meeting our current moment of a surge in union activity, a surge in union organizing. And so it's kind of a forgotten incident in our history, but also in our history of media cover-ups. So I think it's very timely for today, and it's just now about to start going out to festivals. Is there anything nuclear-related that we haven't covered that you would like to get in at this time? Well, I think the subject I keep coming back to every year and and what really inspired my uh, focusing on the subject so much is uh, I briefly mentioned America's first use policy. People say maybe it's tragic what happened to Hiroshima or, you know, you can't change it. You know, it happened a long time ago now. And, you know, the world is so different today. And, you know, why do you keep coming back to it? And my answer is always America and Russia and some other countries has maintained a first use policy, which means the policy of using nuclear weapons first in a war. If we're threatened, if we feel we're threatened, if we're attacked with conventional weapons, we can uh, push the button first. And of course, a lot of people were more concerned when Trump was in office, but every U.S. president, that is still the policy. And there are efforts all the time to get rid of that policy. And sometimes they seem to be making some progress and Obama or Biden expresses some interest in it, for example, but it has not changed yet. And so the lesson of Hiroshima and the reason I keep coming back to it is that I think polls probably still show that most Americans would still endorse the use of the bomb. If you sort of say, do you think the US did the right thing in dropping the bomb on the two Japanese cities? And unless I've missed something, polls still show that Americans sort of endorse that or why, you know, strongly endorse that or partly endorse that. And certainly American officials have never disputed it and and American military people and and most people in the media. Two years ago when there was, we thought there might be a reckoning on the 75th anniversary, really the only major media event, something that was wildly popular was Chris Wallace's pro-bomb special on Fox and then his best-selling book. So here's the 75th anniversary, and uh, the leading, the most popular things to watch or read were both from uh, Chris Wallace of Fox News and both pro-bomb. So there, you know, there really has been no reckoning. So I guess I keep trying to inspire more of a reckoning uh, in my little ways, because, uh, you know, as long as we make an exception for the use of the bomb, for Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, people keep wanting to say that was just an exception, you know, they can never be used again. But in fact, they then endorsed the use of the use of the bomb against two cities. So as long as that is in the American mind, that it actually is okay under certain circumstances to use 
uh, use nuclear weapons, it only encourages future use. That's what uh, really drives me. And uh, so I keep mentioning those three words, no first use. If we here at Nuclear Hot Seat can do anything to help support that reckoning happening, do stay in touch. Whatever we can do, you know, we're here every week. So, well, I think you do. I think you do hope because anytime you draw attention to nuclear issues, and and as you know, they're wide ranging nuclear issues from nuclear waste to uh, nuclear power plants and everything else. That's all all related. So, I think any focus, especially when there's so much focus on other issues today, climate change is as terrible as it is, gets the lion's share of attention now. But uh, you know, nuclear issues are also. And they right here in the here and here and now. So any attention on nuclear issues is very much welcomed. We will keep people informed as to your future work on this subject. You will, of course, keep me informed as okay, to what's thanks. going on so I can pass it on. And for now, Greg Mitchell, we wish you all the best with your many projects. With gratitude for you coming back and being our guest again this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. That was author and award-winning filmmaker Greg Mitchell. We'll have links up to Greg's books and his Countdown to Hiroshima series on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 580. We'll also have a YouTube link to the film that he referenced, The Beginning or the End. Spoiler alert, it is really awful. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. The Hiroshima Peace Memorial Ceremony 2022 will be live-streamed on August 6th from 7 a.m. to 8.50 a.m. in Japan Standard Time, which would make it Friday, August 5th, 2022, at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We will have a link-up to the English version of the transmission on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 580. And this is just one of the many commemorations that are taking place literally around the world. To find out if there is one in your local community, Google Hiroshima Nagasaki 2022. And if you like, put in ceremony or event or commemoration. And if you're unable to join up with either in-person or virtual events, you can do it yourself by taking a moment of silence and perhaps lighting a candle. Here in the United States, the times would be on August 5th at 4.15 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Hiroshima. And for Nagasaki, on August 8th at 7.02 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And a shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat supporter, listener, and kick-ass activist, Vina Kali, who was featured in an article in the Columbus Dispatch on her work to gain benefits for those who were exposed to radioactive pollution at the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant in Piketon, Ohio. I can't say she was tireless because I know the woman does get tired, but she has done fabulous work and we'll have a link up on the website so that you can read all about it. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, 
NEARS.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, WBUR.org, NEIS.org, SongsCommunity.com, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, PowerMag.com, Columbus Dispatch, Tokyo-NP.co.jp, CBSNews.com, KoreaHerald.com, Mainichi.jp, NHK.or.jp, Asahi.com, InterestingEngineering.com, MarianneWildArt.wordpress.com, LakesAgainstNuclearDump.com, TheGuardian.com, KyotoNews.net, China.org.cn, Substack.com, AlJazeera.com, APNews.com, and, as always, the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks to Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear for the weekly Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Now, this is for you. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's a simple thing to do. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box, put in your first name and an email address, and shazam! Every week, you will get one email, just one. It will have the link and a short description of some of the show's contents. Or, if you prefer, just go to your favorite podcast channel and subscribe there. We are all over the place. And by doing any of these actions, you'll make certain that you never miss another episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. Of course, our archive is there, so feel free to search, scroll, check it out. Because whatever you're interested in learning about on nuclear, we probably have at least one, if not more, interviews or special reports on it. How do we get our information? Here's where you can help. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send us an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com. Not Facebook Messenger, please. I it's, Just don't. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment right now and go to the website nuclearhotseat.com, look for the red button, click on it, and know that anything you can do will help, and we really appreciate all support. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that at the opening session of a conference at the UN headquarters about upholding and securing the 50-year-old Global Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned that humanity is, quote, just one misunderstanding, one miscalculation, away from nuclear annihilation. So there you have it. You've just had your nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.